This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Anubha Anushri, a doctorate from the Department of History, Stanford University, and a lecturer at the college program at Stanford Introductory Studies. I'm thrilled to have two very distinguished historians with me, Professor Mrinalini Sinha and Professor Manu Goswami. Professor Mrinalini Sinha is a Alice Freeman Palmer Professor at the Department of History, University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Professor Sinha's first book, entitled Colonial Masculinity, The Manly, the Manly Englishman and the Effeminate Bengali, is a path-breaking work on the colonial economy of gender in the British Empire in India. Originally published in 1995 by Manchester University Press, the book is a key text in the field of imperial studies and uh, could be found in the reading list of every graduate student working on colonialism and gender. Professor Sinha has published widely, and I invite you to engage with her most recent work on the politics of indentured abolition movement in early 20th century imperial India. Our second guest, Professor Manu Goswami, is an associate professor of history at NYU. Her first book, Producing India from Colonial Economy to National Space, was published in 2004 by Chicago University Press. The work traces the contradictions and contradictions of nationalism in colonial India and challenges us to think beyond nation states as a default unit of analysis. She has also published widely on colonial history, and more recently, she has worked on communist internationalisms in early 20th century India. Today, we will be in conversation with Professor Sinha and Professor Goswami about their recently edited volume entitled Political Imaginaries in 20th Century India, published by Bloomsbury in 2022. Divided into three sections, the book includes essays from several well-known scholars of modern India and covers a wide range of topics. I very much look forward to discussing the book with you, Professor Sinha and Professor Goswami. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Lovely to be here, Anubha, and really great to be in conversation with you and Manu. Thank you, Anubha, for the invitation. Uh, Great. Okay. So my first question is to both of you. Uh, Could you briefly tell us what the book um, is about and what are some of the distinctive contributions of the work? Okay, Manu, if you don't mind, let me get that started and then perhaps you can join in as well. Anubhai, I was thinking, instead of starting out with what the book is about, maybe saying a little bit about what prompted the book okay, and what was our aim in, in, in uh, getting this book together. So 
as with all edited collections, these take forever to actually see print. So I think Manu and I started talking about this sometime in 2012, 13. Um, we had a series of conferences in 2014 in India and then in Ann Arbor, where you know people presented their work. And as you can see, it took a long time to see publication. But I think that context, that moment when we were thinking about it is significant in thinking about what we were trying to do with this book. Um, so two kinds of questions that, that animated it. One was this interest in political history. Um, in some ways, political history was, you know, old-fashioned, done, you know, we'd moved to social history, to the cultural turn, but wanting to go back and actually think about what might a rejuvenated political history look like after the contributions of social history of the cultural turn, what might it look mean to go back and look at some of these earlier questions about state, about institution, about power and movement, social movements, wanting to recover some of that after politics had become more diffuse and almost everywhere where it was hard to kind of identify what was political anymore. So that was one question that was animating it. And at the same time, of course, also this recognition that, um, you know, the political had sort of disappeared in our understanding as we kind of think about the way in which certain market logic, not just marketization, but a market logic had entered into state craft into discussions of equality, justice, just almost everywhere, you know, and wanting to kind of claim from that economistic uh, 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 dialogue or um, profusion a place for politics. So I think that was one thing that we wanted to do with this, is to expressly invite scholars to think about their work with thinking about what is political about it, what is politics here, what is happening in with with the term political in their way of thinking about whatever their subject was. And the second was, of course, wanting to think about the 20th century. So here too, I mean, we as South Asianists, we know that, you know, that 20th century moment, somewhere midway in the century, 1947, has been the kind of way in which histories have been uh, written about the 20th century, either leading up to the 47 independence partition moment or then the story of the nation state from 1947. And of course, as you know, historians have been reluctant to actually do much work beyond 47 until very recently. Um, so there had been a growing interest for historians to kind of look at the post-47 period, which earlier had been taken up mainly by social scientists and people from other disciplines, but also a recent interest in the contemporary, right? And beginning to think that perhaps the interest in the contemporary is better understood with real examination or a rethinking of what the 20th century was. So parallel would be something like, you know, what it was, say, for uh, scholars of colonialism in the 1980s and 90s, when we focus on the 19th century, that high time of colonialism, often one made assumptions about what the pre-colonial or the 18th century was all about. When um, scholars came back and really gave us much more nuanced understandings of what we call the early modern, you know, um, and, and the 18th century in particular, 
kind of pushing back against what that uh, understanding of the 18th century had been for some of the early scholars of colonialism. And I think that interest in rethinking 20th century from the perspective of the contemporary was an important motivation as well. I mean, the 20th century kind of provides this moment of you know, Indians encounter with colonial modernity, with kind of imagining new horizons out of that encounter. And so therefore, kind of thinking of this period, not just in terms of that 1947 moment, but the varieties of horizons that were available for people to think about this time. So I think those two motivations, thinking the 20th century, thinking politics really drove us. And I think we did do quite a bit with both of those in the collection of essays we have. So we have essays that look back at things like, you know, the emergency, at elections, at social movements, even canonical figures of politics, like somebody, somebody like Gandhi, but in a very different way. So these have been that these are rethought. Similarly, questions about taxation or civil liberties or land seizure in many of the essays, they appear very differently now than they would have in a very traditional or the uh, established political history of the past. So I think that was what we were trying to do. But Manu, did you want to think or add anything about? the the uh, intentions and goals of the volume yes, um i i um i think Minnie um has summed it up incredibly well i just wanted to add um two things um that link this uh the context the context in which uh this collected volume emerged, that, that specific kind of set of historical moments. But one larger context was a great deal of, um, you know, commonly expressed um, uh, unease about the recession of of the political, right? Um, and this was linked to, as Minnie said, um, you know, what is uh, what was understood as the, you know, the triumph of marketization or the triumph of market logics. And as we began to kind of convene collectively, um, there was a growing sense that our own received conception of politics, if you will, was a 20th century construct. So part of the effort of the volume is to historicize um, what uh, politics was and to kind of um, make visible the more capacious and conjunctural conceptions um, of politics and the political that have emerged at different points. Um, And out of that, for instance, came uh, an insistence on refusing a historiographical logic that would reduce um, uh, the um, political history of India's 20th century to one um, to one solely understood through um, anti-colonial nationalism mm-hmm. right uh, that that is a very thoughtful response um, To continue with our theme of the broad historiography of 20th century India, uh, your uh, your introduction also talks about new histories of the political in South Asia that need to acknowledge the histories of the political elsewhere, uh, such as the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, Africa, and Latin America. 
while there have been some scholarship in the recent past, uh, what are some of the key frontiers and themes that historians of South Asia should be especially attentive to? Uh, well, I think um, just to sort of build on this, this idea of the the historicity of shifting conceptions of politics as they were enacted in collective practices and ideas. So on the one hand, uh, one could say that in South Asian historiography, um, because of both the um, kind of epistemological critique of politics that is linked to subaltern studies, right? If you think back to Ranajit Guha's, um, you know, uh, kind of formidable work on elementary aspects of the political or the kind of Gramscian conception of politics that they were working with, as well as the critical strand that derives um, from a great deal of post-colonial theorizing. Um, the question, the preoccupation with politics as a kind of plebeian activity, as a collective project um, of its multi-dimensional um, temporalities and times, I think has been so. The, the South Asian historiography, but also the archive, the South Asian archive, if you will, has has been an extraordinary kind of resource to think these questions. Um, so it was. Um, even as, if you will, uh, uh, kind of, so it, so this was an attempt in part um, to bring together the work that people were actually um, engaged with and doing, and to uh, um, and through that kind of work of collation, uh, bringing scholars from, you know, working across different academies, um, working on, uh, working within a kind of broadly conceived conception of um, um, India's 20th century history. Um, so one example would be, you know, to think of the way in which um, Eleanor Newbegin's uh, uh, essay, which looks at... Uh, a kind of emergent conception of citizenship, but through political economy and in particular through debates and statistics, partly debates, but also concerns over the poor and poverty and how that is linked to a wider political project, but also the construction of a new kind of um, political subject. Um, one can think, um, and this is an argument, say, you know, there's a link between what she's attempting to do and what Karuna Mantena at, uh, um, does in her essay on Gandhi and the practice of citizenship, um, as well as... Uh, uh, Rinalini Sinha's essay on the the, com- the completely unexpected or unforeseen alliances that are made in the context of a um, of the in- uh, of the emancipation movement uh, around um, indentured labour. Um, so it. I think one of the things that comes out comparatively, if you will, in terms of the literatures, perhaps of politics that were much more developed, if you were in the 90s and 2000s elsewhere, perhaps, uh, you know, in particular in uh, Latin America, but also elsewhere, was um, a particular focus on um, universalist movements uh, and their mobilizing power. 
but the ways in which they are envisioned and enacted sort of on the ground, right? So that any hard and fast separation between social, cultural and political um, history was hard to maintain. So that was part of um, uh, what the uh, attempt was to kind of, um, as as um, Minnie said, it was an attempt to rejuvenate um I mean, in some ways, histories of politics after political history, um, after a set of interventions had been made, um, and in a context where people were already making a set of new uh, arguments that were shifting the kind of map of historiographical debates. Um, Great. Yeah. Uh, Professor Sana, would you like to jump in? Yeah, just just two quick things to that. I mean, I think that's that's wonderful. And especially in terms of thinking about how the work was building on work, the, the collection is building on work that people were already doing, but also finding a way to kind of bring them together to articulate the, the what, it, what, what, what this project about kind of rethinking politics would look like. But just want to say one thing about um, the focus on India here, right? So one thing we, and because you asked, what is the relationship here with, you know, Europe or with, you know, Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa? And I think in writing the introduction, we were both aware of the historiography uh, and the literature from these other places, but also aware that we were writing a history, a political history that was placed, that had, a, that was located in the subcontinent and in what would become the uh, Republic of India. And the reason I want to point that out is that I don't think this, the aim was to make this like the representative history of the 20th century, where India becomes either a name for the global south or of the universal. Right. So it was a gesture that was also trying to see how do you write histories of particular places that in other political histories, it is the history of one place, you know, a history of Europe that had become masqueraded or was masquerading as the universal. So what does it mean to try and think about broader questions about politics and the political arising from this very particular history, which is the history in India? And I think Prathima Banerjee, and I think Manu, you, you cited her, talks about, you know, in her book, Elementary Aspects of the, of the Political, precisely how this kind of very placed or located history forces us to not assume an a priori understanding of what is political, but to really open up the possibility of thinking of political itself as a historical, contingent, conjunctural category, and always in relationship to things that are considered non-political, you know, who has elementary aspects of present insurgency, or in my own work, thinking in terms of the relationship between the political or the social in, in the colonial context. So really kind of opening up that meaning of political to his history and contingency. Thank you for that uh, very fantastic response. And moving on, this is a question to Professor Sinha on her fantastic chapter on the evolution of indentured labor in colonial India in 1917. Uh, what were some of the motivations in writing about the forgotten historiography of anti-indenture movement in South Asia? Um, thanks, Anupa. I mean, again, 
timing is so important. So when I was writing or thinking about this essay in 2014, it did seem relatively forgotten. But, uh, you know, the the 100th anniversary of the abolition of recruitment in 2017 and then the termination of indenture in most colonies in 2022 did bring up you know, the abolition of indenture into the historiography once again, with lots of conferences and, and uh, uh, articles coming out around that time. But I still think that my original idea in 2014, that this historiography has been sort of underdeveloped, still holds despite that attention, partly because I think there is a sort of a temporal and a spatial kind of uh, misrecognition of the abolition of indenture. And let me explain what I mean. Temporally, I think it is because um, uh, the abolition of indenture happens at that moment, actually, before what we think of in the standard historiography of the mainstream official nationalist movement, the shift from a sort of elite nationalist movement to a more popular mass movement, often associated with the arrival of Gandhi from South Africa. Now, this precedes that. So then it often gets kind of put under a kind of elite, moderate nationalist concern with the uh, Indian diaspora in various parts of the empire. And our understanding has been that this has been much more an elitist concern, about not about the rights of ordinary people like indentured workers, but really about elites. And so it is this temporal frame that indentured, uh, uh, abolition of indenture just doesn't fit this temporal understanding of Indian mainstream official nationalism. But I think also spatially it's a misfit because when we people pay attention to the indenture abolition, even when they do, they often go back to Gandhi, you know, because he's associated most importantly, apart from some of the uh, uh, moderate nationalist leaders in India with the movement. And Gandhi in his autobiography kind of says, if you want to know about the indenture movement, read my book, Satyagraha in South Africa. And I think scholars have tended to follow that and assume that the indenture question was significant for the history of South Africa, at most for the history of empire, but with very little significance for the history of India. So there's a spatial excision of the movement as well. So part of my attempt in wanting to rethink the history is to kind of imagine that period of Indian history, you know, that moment around the early uh, uh, 1910s and 20s, open that temporally and spatially to other narratives, to other ways of thinking about it. And I think indenture really allows one to do that. The second kind of important important thing that I uh, find useful in thinking about the uh, abolition of indenture is really rethinking the nature of how we talk about social or political movements. And here I'm thinking of, you know, a work, something like, uh, Shekhar Patak's work on the Chipko movement very recently. Um, I was reading it uh, just, you know, three months ago, and I was like, wow, so struck by, by that book, because it's doing, and it's articulating a question that I think I was trying to in that uh, article, and I definitely want to in the larger project, is making us see these movements in their grassroots context. Too often, 
you know, movements get associated with certain leaders and then their story is told as a story of that leader with a singular uh, 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 ideology, a singular kind of understanding. But he shows us that, you know, Chipko was much more than, you know, Chandra Prasad Bhatt or uh, Sundarlal Bahugana. They were ordinary people who had very, very diverse interests, and they could not all be made into one movement. And that's pretty much what the story of indenture uh, here is as well, because it's Gandhi is involved, but not really. We get a story of mass anti-colonial movement that is not dependent upon one leader bringing the masses in, but actually a much more grassroots kind of movement. And I think this indenture movement even forces us to rethink Champaran and Gandhi's role in Champaran. Here, two scholars around the anniversary, 100th anniversary of the Champaran struggle, have begun to recover the grassroots context of it. And many of the leaders you know, the, the Champaran movement were also involved in my uh, uh, um, uh, uh, anti-indenture or abolition movement. So really rethinking the relationship between leadership and movements and what these movements consist of. And of course, the final thing that fascinates me about uh, the abolition of indenture, and that segues nicely with Champaran as well, is the, the 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 kind of material we get of peasants themselves, peasants' voices. So you may be aware that there is this wonderful project that Shahid Amin, Thridup Surhad, and Megha Todi are doing now when they've discovered those testimonies of peasants that Gandhi recorded and his uh, assistants recorded in Champaran that had gotten lost in the archives but have been recently discovered and are now being published. Now, that's an incredible archive. Now, of course, this is not the true voice. It's mediated through various things, but it's still an incredible primary resource. Now, I want, it's often referred to as a typically Gandhian technique, you know, this kind of recording of testimonies of these peasants and then making them available for a court of inquiry. Now, I'm suggesting that that's already happening in the abolition movement before Champaran, where peasants are recording in a similar mediated fashion, you know, certain affidavits where they kind of testify to their conditions. And I think that is an incredibly valuable resource that kind of challenges the genealogy of mass politics in India that kind of starts and ends with Gandhi. I mean, his footprint is there, but I think there's much more that's going on. So that's my interest in uh, the abolition of indenture. Uh, wonderful. Um, uh, yeah, continuing with the theme of history of political movements in early 20th century, uh, what is striking in your account is uh, the story of the unusual alignments between different groups, uh, such as uh, that between the marginal indentured workers and the conservative elite Marwari community in colonial Calcutta. You call these alliances as giving rise to a new political subject. Um, you, the term you use is uh, a supernumerary subject. Could you tell us what you mean by this? Okay. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because, you know, I think I got, when I was writing this paper and even at the conference when, when I uh, presented the paper in Delhi, I think I did get a little bit of pushback uh, against this. And so let me 
take this opportunity to explain what I mean. So the idea of the supernumerary subject I get from Jacques Rancière, and of course it means something that's extra, you know, that's in excess of what is absolutely necessary. And very literally, it could be something that is not enumerated, that's counted, but like the extra actor that uh, on stage who is there. So he's using the supernumerary subject in that fashion, that the idea of the extra. So what is the extra for him? And in a way, he's saying that this notion of the people doesn't exist already. It only exists when it is mobilized, when there's a mobilization in the name of the people. And that's what I was trying to look at. That new, that politics is creating something new, something that was not directly correlated to people's sociological standing. So it wasn't the people weren't the peasants, the people weren't, you know, the majority. They didn't have a particular ideology. It was something that was being created that was beyond and above the individual groups, classes, castes, genders, religious groups that were being mobilized in this in this uh, uh, movement. So in a way, you get this, uh, 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 the reason I want to kind of emphasize that the people is something new that's being created in the act of mobilizing against indenture is that the standard understanding has been to equate the people with one particular group. So, for example, much of South Asian historiography has been concerned with the question of the peasants equal the people. So then, you know, when you think of that moment of uh, 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 mass movement, mass anti-colonial nationalist movement, the question, say, especially around Gandhi's leadership, is did he just speak to the people or did he speak for the people? Did the people, and this is classic Shahid Amin work, which is so fantastic, that did uh, did the people accede to Gandhi or did they exceed him? You know, did they go beyond what he said? Now, my point in some ways is to say that that is still act, assuming that a particular sociological group, the peasants, were all, always the peasants, and they all, that is the people. The people is something that becomes, that is being named, that is being created in this anti-indenture uh, 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 movement. And it brings together then a motley group of people. You know what I mean? It's men, it's women, it's businessmen, it's, you know, workers, it's lower caste, it's upper caste, middle class, urban poor, all kinds of people. They don't have a shared language. I mean, they are, some are orthodox Hindus, like my Marwari abolitionists. Others are, you know, um, uh, kind of proto-communist to to think of, you know, early communist uh, 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 in in Manu's terms. Um, So this is a really unlikely group of people that cannot be explained in caste terms or class terms or ideological terms. And that's what is that supernumerary about them. And the final thing that makes them so different is that this group then claims to be addressing the interests of not any one particular group. So my indentured workers are, you know, very few of the Indians, very small percentage of Indians are being recruited as indentured workers at this time. 
this becomes, they make their claim in the abolition movement to be speaking about society at large, India at large. So as speaking for the whole, they're not speaking just for indentured workers. So whether it's, you know, women's groups, Marwaris, businessmen, indentured workers themselves, they are making a claim about the larger social whole. And you get this category that emerges here, which I find really interesting, the figure of the Aam Admi, right? Now, the Aam Admi doesn't have, you know, a particular class standing, does not, I mean, even though in, it's gendered in certain ways, I don't think that's the, the way in which it's been meant. It's this new thing. It's this extra, very contingent, very accidental, unforeseen formation that is now claiming to speak for civil society, for society as a, as a whole, that is so interesting and uh, to, to me. And again, it was not accidental that I was thinking about this when I was working on abolition around the same time that the Ahmadmi, you know, to has post anti-corruption movement is emerging in the political discourse in India and that scholars are having a really hard time trying to understand it because it doesn't fit the standard, you know, it has right wing, you know, people left off center and left involved in it. It has people from all social uh, classes, very difficult to, to understand. So I was interested in those moments when politics creates this kind of new political collectivity that is formed out of its own working. And it's not a collectivity that has a certain essence. So it's not, doesn't have ethnic, religious, or other kinds of commonality. It really is something that is very contingent that is formed, and it's formed in particular historical moments around particular causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Professor Sinha, for such an extensive and thoughtful response. Uh, and thank you, uh, Manu, for your patience. Uh, the next question is for you um, and uh, on your powerful essay entitled Conspicuous Con- Con- Communism that I highly recommend to students of early 20th century India. I couldn't help notice the irony in the title with its reference to conspicuous consumption. Uh, could you tell us what your essay is about and the kind of history you're tracing here? Yeah, I mean, so it's conspicuous, um, or the title is, uh, the, the conspicuous in the title is there for a number of reasons. Most obviously and literally is because um, the merit trial was uh, part of a series of conspiracy trials. And of course, the idea of a conspiracy being a secret agreement Um and there is um, the fact that, in fact, that there there was for the ma- the vast majority of the merit accused, there's a kind of passionate avowal of uh, the process through which they uh, became uh, uh, became uh, sort of communists or tr- or radical trade unionists or socialists. Um, and um, so there's a kind of play on that idea of conspicuous, but also the extent to which uh, that um, 
in in the 1920s, thinking even in global comparative terms, India is uh, one of the kind of epicenter for the reception of uh, the meaning um, and the kind of political horizons that have been opened up uh, after the um, Russian Revolution, because there was a sense that somehow this was a formerly similar peasant society, um, that the Russian Revolution was uh, as much anti-imperial as it was anti-capitalist. Um, and um, that so there was a proximity of that um, of that event. Um, and I was trying to kind of underline the ways in which conspicuous um, the the more conceptual uh, idea behind conspicuous goes back to the um, idea of political imaginary that um, uh, Rinalina. Rinalini and I were working with, um, which is signaled in the, um, you know, in in the uh, title of the book, Political Imaginaries, so that our conception of political imaginaries is very topographical. Um, They are more akin to less about representational or a discursive construction. They're, They're conceptions of the possible that are visible and envisioned um and um so so that was one meaning of the conspicuous um and that they uh to refer to somebody who um Minali, um spoke of you know the the philosopher uh um um political philosopher um Jacques Rancière this idea that that politics or historically uh, that politics entails uh, the constitution of novelty, of historical novelty, of newness. Um, and that's what um, I, the paper or the essay is trying to trying to kind of make sense of that. Um, and the way, the, the term that, that he uses, in some ways he has a very um, visual literally aesthetic conception of politics he says it it leads to a new distribution of the sensible uh, so this is uh that so that's partly the play of um you know conspicuous um and in some ways it picks up exactly it echoes what um Rinalini said with the supernumerary things which are excessive right that they are uh, that, that 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 are overt and abundant um, um, rather than secret. And of course, there is the irony that uh, a trial, a kind of, uh, you know, the largest and the longest running of what had been a whole series of trials as a preemptive um, measure against uh, a new um, political uh, formation um, ends up being a kind of, right, unwitting kind of vessel for the widespread pub, uh, publicization of ideas of socialist and communist ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you. That's a very fascinating response. Uh, my next question continues with the discussion of communism in colonial India that I found absolutely fascinating. Um, your essay shows that Indian communism intersected with various strands that included pan-Islamism and Sikh egalitarianism. How did these seemingly opposite ideologies, uh, communism and religious anti-colonialism, come together? 
Could you explain these intersections and their significance for the political history of the subcontinent? Yes. Um, so first of all, I mean, I think there is something, I think not enough has been made of the fact of uh, that so much uh, of what we consider as modes of political modernism in India's, um, not just India's 20th century, but even in some ways in 19th century politics. So if you hear, if you go back to some, a figure like Naroji, right, um, uh, or the kind of Parsi dominance in the early Indian National Congress, um, or the extraordinary work that's being done around theorizing a colonial economy. Of course, you have major figures like Day, but there are a number of um, Parsi political economists as well. I mean, that, that there's a kind of way in which uh, I think that there's been a relative underappreciation of the fact that what we would now consider, quote, and what, what are now designated as, uh, quote, minorities have been at the forefront of, uh, uh, if you will, egalitarian uh, modes of political modernism, right? And this has been the case down uh, from, you know, that early kind of Parsi kind of Indian National Congress down to, say, you know, something like the farmers movement, right, which has been very uh, largely Sikh dominated that one of our authors, the sociologist Michael Levian, has an essay on in terms in relation to kind of struggles over um, land uh, and uh, special economic zones. Um, so I think that uh, I so I think that I wanted to highlight the ways in which and it is empirically there is you know empirical uh, there's you know it is a commonplace observation that the that the initial if you will recruits or uh subaltern sort of figures who join uh these a, a variety of anarchist movements and there's a great deal of scholarship on this um which has been just um wonderful older and more recent scholarship as well have were um came from traditions of either Sikh egalitarianism, right, if you think of the Gadhar, uh, uh, but also of pan-Islamism, and this is something that's borne out in the merit case, of course, with particular figures like Shokat um, Usmani. And um, what I was trying to um, show that there's a kind of, uh, you know, because this is a particular very particular moment when a, quote, official communist party hasn't been established. There is no formal official recognition of the communist party until after the merit case, right? I mean, there is, of course, the sort of, you know, the foundation and exile, um, but that is really, uh, if it were, uh, you know, shrouded or kept in secret, right? The merit trial is publicized and, uh, you know, uh, the accused are kind of well aware of the stakes that that going through the records uh, that rather than a kind of complete disavowal of uh, Sikh egalitarianism or a past pan-Islamism, there is an attempt to articulate uh, between uh, a kind of emergent universalism and a kind of li- a concrete lived universalism, 
Um, and I think it's very interesting that it is in, uh, so that it's not as if, uh, so the suggestion is not that, um, though I think this is the case, that there's an affinity because both uh, Islam and Sikhism have a uh, deeply egalitarian and militant um Right, a, a kind of militant egalitarianism written into its um, into their logic and the logic of everyday practices, but also because in making sense or apprehending a new political horizon, there is a kind of you know I mean this is a kind of historical anthropological banality, but there is an attempt to uh, make sense of it through uh, what is already understood and known um, as uh, a potential uh, a potential emancipatory uh, venue right and so uh, the articulations are that they're, they're not always coherent um, and they are often found in uh, they were often found in speeches so some of these are you know potentially recruitment efforts but I, but I do think it's interesting to think of uh, who joins and why and trying to make sense of why particular um, particular colonial subjects or particular uh, are, are drawn to communism or socialism in its um, initial articulation. Um, and the other reason that I was kind of interested is to kind of push against this sort of Cold War idea of, uh, of a kind of... Um, um, that communi- you know that this binary between um, communism on the one hand it's you know understood in Cold War terms as a religious belief as a religious belief that is against all other religions right um, so I think that the articulations especially in a society where um, uh, um, especially in a colonial society, were just much more heterogeneous and 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 complex than that kind of um, already available binarism implies. Um, but it's also a way to kind of, uh, I mean, so it was there in the evidence, right, in the way that people talked about the, or some of them talked about it, a figure like Shokat Osmani, who actually uh, writes about his um, his experience as a journey, as a conversion, and far from disappearing from the historical record, he actually ends up continuing to write about questions of gender. Um, and uh, right towards the end of his life, in the sixties, he has all these publications on on Palestine, for example, and self determination. So that rather than something that um, sort of seizes. Uh, or you know, the, there's often a common assumption by that you know somebody, a figure like Usmani, disappears uh, from politics and in, in after Mirat, and in fact he does not. But it was also trying to say that um, that uh, early communism and the way that it is understood and opened up, and then if you think of a whole range of kind of heterodox figures and again in that conjuncture in the of the 20s um it's not just about you know forcing a new dawn it's not just a kind of mechanical futurism there's also about um about redeeming uh prior hopes in other words the temporality is not just 
a kind of lineal futurism. It's also a reference. So when when there are images of Guru Nanak as a kind of uh, militant emancipator, right? In some ways, these are also uh, refigurations that are happening because of uh, because of the contiguity or the adjacent, the fact that these are now adjacent, right? Something like anarchism or Sikhism or communism and Islam. So they are both subject to uh, a kind of um, revision. That the the interpretive work is not articulate is also to transform conceptions of what is Sikh egalitarianism or what is an idea of pan Islam, which is very different when communism is there, right? As as a kind of collective horizon than when it is, uh, if you will, disappeared in later moments of the 20th century. Um, so it is also to think about uh, the temporality, uh, uh, to think of it not just about, um, a, you know, a mechanical futurism, because, of course, um, you know, um, you know uh, but also in terms about, uh, uh, about the ways in which, you know, the past is not completely disappeared as a site of, um, political uh, intervention and imagination, so that there's a uh, that it, that it's more um, multi-branded than uh, one or the other. Right. Yeah. No. Indeed, uh, the past is is not dead. The past is very much. Uh, you can find great parallels to what you were talking about in the contemporary. Uh, socialist uh, environmental movements in Central Latin America. Uh, they mobilize a lot of religious symbolism against the state um, and corporate capitalism. So there's, there's clearly a lot of parallel um, in continuing in our world. And this brings me... Sorry. Sorry, yeah, just on that. I mean, there is a way in which one could perhaps... Um, if you will, uh, de-link the idea of liberation theology. I mean, communism was, in a way, uh, or seen as a kind of liberation theology. Theology in the sense that it's, you know, bound up with certain doctrines. There's a formal way in which it's understood and studied. Many of the merit accused are doing things like organize, I mean, yes, they're organizing trade unions and the strikes, but they're also political reading groups and the like. So there is a kind of liberation theology element to that. So I think it's it's unhelpful. I mean, to go back to the guha, you know, the guha of the prose of counterinsurgency, right, and that kind of extraordinary essay. Um, and yet he you know, he, there's this argument that um, they they rebel uh, not in their own name, but in the name of their god, local god, and that's a sign of alienation. Um, so it's it's in uh, and that you know, Kuha. I mean, this of course perhaps refracts. Um, you know, there's it's sort of maybe there's a footprint here of Guha's own. Uh, political history or formation, right, as a former member of the Communist uh, Party, right, having left, of course, in 1956, very early. Uh, uh, but um, this idea that th- that this is a moment before, uh, you know, before a Stalinist logic or before the party state, before, if you will, uh, the revol- um, before, uh, you know, official communism, if you will, um, it takes over. 
Um, so yeah. Right. Um, thank you. Um, that's fantastic. And thank you for elaborating more on this question, this interesting intersection between religion and communism. Um, this brings me to the final question to both of you and an especially important question for someone who intends to work on the political history of the subcontinent. As scholars who have defined the field of South Asian history in many ways, what do you think are some of the new directions for the political histories of South Asia? Uh, What are also some of the challenges one could anticipate in the writing of such histories? Wow. (laughs) Anupar, that's a lovely, lovely question. And it's one that, you know, one really, really should be thinking about. Um, I guess it's hard to, to, to be predictive about, you know, what the directions might be, but perhaps I could take a stab at that by pointing out a couple of things that may be um, answering your questions about, you know, where I see the field going. I mean, of course, we know there's been this enormous interest recently in, you know, uh, looking at uh, political thought, political institutions anew, and what... Uh, Whilst a lot of it has been looking at some canonical figures from different perspectives, and that's fantastic. But I think one of the things that I found really exciting about some of that material is also bringing in very different kind of actors into the conversation. So I'm thinking here of, you know, work on the Constitution, for example, which has been seeing a real kind of uh, resurgence in recent years. But the Constitution looking very different when we think of its architects, not just, you know, as uh, uh, um, I think Randall Austin rightly recognized long ago, not just as founding fathers, but founding fathers and mothers. So, you know, the role that women played in the Constituent Assembly or the role of ordinary people, you know, I think of, you know, work done by a number of historians on it or of indigenous groups in the making of in these institutions. So one, like just recasting the the realm of political thought or political in, intellectual history much broader than what the, the standard cast has been. But the other uh, direction that I find really exciting, and that is kind of figuring out ways to think about how South Asian history, you know, about a very emplaced history, can provide uh, uh, ways of thinking conceptually and theoretically, can generate conceptual and theoretical knowledge as well. And that has often meant questioning certain, the very concepts that we have taken as universal across time and place when we study things like, you know, um, feminist historians did that with a concept like gender. You know, that gender is not the same across time and place. And what does it mean to question the, the, the centrality of that concept? What other things might do better work, not just for studying, you know, India, but other, other places and other times? So many of our political concepts are rights of sovereignty. You know, what might it look like? Or what is the political? What is the social? If we try and create new conceptual vocabulary coming out of histories from places like India, where we see lots of different traditions coming together. And I think uh, Aditya Nigam and, and, and Prathama Banerjee, who I referred to earlier as well, talk about it as 
thinking across traditions. So not necessarily trying to pr- produce an alternative to a European concept that has been falsely uni- universalized, but means not just simply provincializing Europe, but really kind of thinking across various traditions to I- offer different kinds of vocabularies, concepts to think about politics here as well as elsewhere. And I think it is happening and it's really interesting to see that. Yeah, no, I think I think there's, uh, gosh, extraordinarily amazing work that is being done right now in, in South Asian um, historiography by a, a kind of, uh, a, um, in some ways that's that, um, speaks to kind of older strengths in South Asian historiography in particular, in some ways, um, legal history, but also new forms of environmental history, new histories of political economy. Uh, from uh, um, um, So I think all of those, are, so that um, ha- are, are very um, significant. Um, I, 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 but I do think, I mean, I don't know if, uh, Minnie talked about this, but I, I do think that there are, one shudders to think of what the institutional barriers might be, right? So, um, so at the level of archives, at the level of access to archives, at the level of, uh, of um, I don't know, creating an institutional space. So it's, it, it, I, you know, I think that when these conferences, for example, Minnie, I don't know if you have the same sense that when they were held in 2014 or 20, you know, in, in, in Delhi and Ann Arbor, right, there was a, a very, dis, I mean, there, there wasn't the more beleaguered and besieged, actively beleaguered and besieged um, uh, every day that are um, contributors from the Indian Academy were increasingly um, living, right? Um, um, and so in a way that was, um, I think, instructive um, to think about. So in, in other words, um, the kind of critical work, I mean, critical, it, it requires a great deal of um, sort of institutions, resources, um, investment. And I think those are questions. They're longstanding questions, you know, um, uh, uh, archives defunding, etc., um, but also uh, the kind of memory wars, right, um, in the present. So it seems to me that the work of kind of critical historical scholarship is even more um, significant, um, as as you know, uh, the essay by Nivedita Menon at the end makes very clear. Um, and is 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 in a kind of exemplary instance of, um, as well as um, the very um, interesting essay, for example, by Kalyani Ramnath in the um, in the volume on um, on efforts uh, towards civil liberties, uh, early lawyers. So I th- I think that these are questions that are, you know, in 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 both of those essays that I mentioned that they're very urgent again like there's no if you will respite or scholarly you know there's no scholarly sanctuary to return to uh, right in 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 relation to this this um archive and political landscape i mean that's both its um curse and its great promise yes 
Yes. Um, thank you. This is a really nuanced and fantastic conversation. Uh, there's a lot to mull over here and there's a lot to learn from uh, our from your 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 words here um, I'm glad we are thinking about more closely about the state of Indian political history beyond the colonial and post-colonial binary um, thank you so much for your time professor Sinha and professor Goswami it has been an absolute pleasure engaging with both of you today thank you thank you thank you Anubha.